Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Broadcast, our regular podcast looking at pensions and savings. I'm your host, Rachel Meadows, and I'm Head of Proposition for Pensions and Savings here at Broadstone. I'm joined by my co-host, David Brooks, Head of Policy. This time, we're speaking to Steve Charlton, who's Head of DC and Solutions for EMEA and Asia at SEI, a Master Trust provider. And Steve is going to take an interesting angle when it comes to talking about pensions today, because he and the team at SEI have con- commissioned a really interesting piece of research around the concept of pension ownership. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Could you talk to us a little bit around your research? Yeah. Hi, Rachel. Hi, David. It's very nice to be here. And um, yeah, for sure. Um, so the research itself, we commissioned Ignition House to to carry out some research um, and it was research of real people. Uh, we had um, a thousand people aged between uh, 22 and 55 um, interviewed to get their uh, yeah, to get so we could extend our understanding of what they felt about pensions. Um, these were people that had pension schemes. They were in a workplace pension scheme, so everybody qualified that they've they've got something that they can actually talk about and express an opinion on. And the reason we wanted to carry out the research was because we felt that over the years, you know, the industry has tried to educate, um, tried to engage. Um, with pension scheme members, um, not just in the UK, but but around the world. Yeah, yeah every, everybody's had a go at it in, in, in some shape or form. But for the most part, we failed to hit the right spots. So we wondered whether actually, you know, education is a lofty ambition, trying to educate somebody about something that, 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 that suggests that we're trying to give them all of the knowledge they need to do something, to run something, to work with something. And, and, and we haven't. Um, engagement um, felt like a softer target, but again, I think we've missed that because pensions aren't, yeah, apart from us, yeah, they're, they're not fun. Um, people don't really, you know, talk about them over dinner. Um, so we wondered whether something like ownership um, is better because ownership is a sense of feeling rather than a, you know, engagement which might suggest uh, an action might be required or an involvement might be required. So having a sense of ownership, something that you can take control over, but not necessarily have to do anything about, um, we felt we wondered whether that was a better um, description of what we should be aiming for as an industry. Um, the research was carried out over the summer, um, and I can say, Rachel, that we have stacks of statistics in there, and we know as an industry we love a good statistic. Um, so yeah, we've got stacks of statistics that we can run through. We love a yeah. statistic. We, we love do. A graph. We absolutely love it. Yeah, and, and when when the report is published, you'll see that there are stacks of graphs in there just to keep the industry engaged. Oh, fantastic! And it is an interesting angle, isn't it? Because there has there's been so much talk about engagement in the industry. I mean, for years now, really. So yeah, taking that view of ownership, it it's thought provoking. Yeah, and we had some help. Yeah, we had some help from um, the great and the good in the industry, um, uh, just to, to act as a steering committee. Um, uh, so yeah, we had people from sort of PPI. We had people from organisations that uh, uh, specialise in um, uh, communication. Um, we had people from pension schemes as well, um, just to help us make sure that we were on the right track and not doing what we might have a natural tendency to do, which is to revert to what we've always done before, but always testing and challenging that we're 
making sure that we're we're asking the right questions in the right way um, to elicit the responses that that are genuine um, and not sort of predetermined by ourselves. Do you have any sort of favourite stats that really stand out? Do you want to sort of hit us with a big one? That you're like, oh, this is this is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there, there were some, um, some 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 findings that I found personally sort of well was in a way quite scary um but but fascinating nonetheless um and and it was mostly around this fact that the vast majority in fact 82 percent of these thousand people said that they like to feel in control of their finances um that they you know they, they took an interest they understood what they had and they felt in control uh 81 of them 81% said that their pension would be an important part of their retirement, but only 18% of them said they felt they were in control of their pension. Mm. So you've got this massive contrast between people who believe that they knew what they wanted from all of the things they were doing in their financial environment, but they had no idea of how to look after their pension scheme. It was so low down the list of you know, understanding. It was quite frightening. Um, uh, and, and there was sort of some associated statistics that kind of said, you know, if you if you if you've invested in an ISA or you've got a savings account or you've got your mortgage, then you felt more of a sense of ownership of it. Mm. Um, but the pension scheme was, was less. Um, uh, felt less like a piece of of your own financial world that you owned. Uh, it was almost something that was sitting in the background, something that you knew was there, but you didn't know how to do anything with it. Yeah, it's kind of, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's sort of the, the conflict, it sort of feels to be the historic paternalism that we have. So if you go back into the past, into the 50s, 60s, 70s, employers setting up DB schemes and almost making it compulsory and people go in and people are... Our parents would have been in a pension scheme, probably wouldn't even know much about it. And then you get the auto-enrolment success. I'll do air quotes. The success of auto-enrolment, again, based on a paternalistic government, I suppose, again, to make people get into a, a pension scheme. And that's the that's the disconnect, isn't it? Because there isn't the ownership for the person. You know, you are in a pension scheme and you trust it. Well, whether you do trust it, that might be something we talk about. But, you know, you, you, you're in it. And that's it. And it comes out of your pay and that's it. Well, well that's that's absolutely right. And, and and yeah, one of the things that we we highlight right at the very beginning is that that um you know if you if you if you're investing in an ISA, you're making a decision to put some mm. money, put your money in an ISA. And and, and generally yeah, you're 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 involved in that decision. But with, with pensions and auto enrollment, whilst it has been a success in that it's extended the amount of people that got access to a pension that are involved in a pension. In the majority of cases, vast majority of cases, people that are being auto-enrolled didn't choose their provider. So that's the, that's one bit of sort of you know, where you can disassociate that decision to, to to be involved. They've not chosen how much they want to pay in, and they've not chosen where the money is invested. So if you think about the decision of buying an ISA, yeah, even if it's a cash ISA from your bank or your building society, you're still deciding, you're still saying, yeah, I want to do that. But with pensions, you're not. It's been done to you or for you. But there's no, you know, there's no, there's no personal involvement in those decisions. So if that's happening and you just accept it as part of working, then 
how can you how, how can you then get people to say it's mine and I want to take ownership of it. And is the premise of your research then that if we could just crack that nut, if we could make people feel that sense of ownership over their pension, that that would improve their outcomes, that would improve, you know, some of the some of the answers, I guess, that you uncovered? Yeah, I think it would. Um, so, you know, that, that, that sense of ownership is a, is a, is a feeling. Um, you know, and, and whether that can come from feeling that your money's doing some good, um, feeling that your money might be doing you some good, um, or you know, if we wanted to take it one step further, um, a sense of responsibility to make sure that you've got enough in, in your pension plan, um, uh, then ownership would be a good thing and a better thing than trying to strive for engagement or or education. Um, and, and what I would hope lead to better outcomes um, or better understanding of what an outcome might be and that the outcome might not be enough for you and therefore you need to do something about it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And in your, when you were um, asking the questions of your participants, how did that feeling of ownership compare, say, with a pension to other kinds of financial products? Because I, th- I mean, I think we know this is a whole scale problem across the board, isn't it? Anything financial, you know, it, it immediately puts a wall up. But how did that compare uh, with other financial assets? Are you ready for some statistics? Absolutely. <laughs> so I'll, re- I'll read off a few. Um uh, and I'll read them verbatim from 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 the report. Um, and I think that that'll answer your question, Rachel. So, fifty nine percent that they do not feel connected to their pension, and it does not really feel like their it's their money. Two thirds of members agreed that they didn't pay much attention to their pension; it was just sitting in the background. Nearly three quarters say that their savings feel like their money, whereas pensions feels a bit different. said that pensions feels like a tax. And and, and for me, that was a huge number, a surprising number, um, and quite a a scary number. Uh, 54% said that whilst they're generally on top of their finances, they find pensions difficult. Um, uh, But they also said that they see pensions as necessary but in contrast to necessary, confuse, confusing and worrying. That's so interesting and scary and worrying for me as well. <laughs> you know, yeah. just hearing yeah. some of those, uh, they're not massively, I would say maybe not su- surprising, but the tax one, I mean, this is a podcast, so there's a high chance you can't see us, but both mine and Rachel's eyebrows were going up at that one because <laughs> that is, that's, well, that's awful really because that's just like, negativity all over that that's just it's it's a penalty it's a it's something i have to do and i don't like it you know yeah. probably a general yeah. view of, of tax um for you know at least deductions that's so that's they're not seeing any benefit at all for what's going on no uh, and I, I think um when we saw that statistic we yes we thought scary but the more we thought about it the more we thought it was worrying and, and actually yeah that would suggest that the last 25 30 years of engagement and education have been a complete failure because we failed to help people understand that rather than being a deduction that is demanded by 
legislation or or whatever it might be um you know the the pension savings should be seen as a way of preparing for your non-working lifetime mm. and, and if we can help with that non-working lifetime then it's not a tax it should be a benefit so we've fundamentally missed the whole purpose of mm. what pensions are about well i think very worrying for employers as well when you you know you talk about the benefit of pension savings is that for most employers the pension benefit that they're providing to staff is probably the most valuable most expensive benefit you know that they're providing to their staff and if staff are actually seeing this as a negative thing a confusing thing a tax you know for employers that's so demoralizing isn't it so there's a real communication piece for employers there to communicate look this is an employee benefit this is not a stick yeah, well, I, well, it's a long time since I've worked in the area of, of, of wider benefits and benefits outside of pensions. But yeah, even going back to 20 years ago when I when I was, yeah, if you think about healthcare, if you think about uh, you know life assurance that employers might provide or um, uh, income support in the event that you're, you're you're sick, those those are relatively inexpensive products to to provide by comparison to the amount of money that. An employer is required to pay into a pension or might pay into a pension, which could be more. Um, so, yeah, um, I think as an employer, you probably look at that statistic and think, I'd really like to do something different about that and to change people's opinions because it's part of your employment that stays with you for the rest of your life. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter whether you change employers seven, eight, nine times over your lifetime, there's always going to be a bit of that employer that is providing for you when you're not working anymore. And I mean, I suppose for employers, there's maybe two main challenges there in that I suppose in order to feel ownership of, of something, whether it's your pension, you need to understand what it is, what it's worth. Maybe that was arguably a bit more straightforward in a defined benefit pension space where you can convey, look, you're a member of this scheme this is what it will mean rather than in a defined contribution world where we're building up a fund. But it's much more complicated, especially since pension freedoms, to tell someone, but what will that mean in your retirement? What is that actually worth? There's that DBDC. But then also, I think for employers, there's probably also this theme around communication and how are you talking about pay and benefits? And I think there are some employers that are possibly cottoning on to this better than others so if you've got very engaged employers who've maybe got a flexible benefits platform they're communicating total reward statements total remuneration packages you know on the flex platform you can see exactly what all of the different components of your pay and benefits are worth to each year that maybe helps to give you a bit of a present value which might help that ownership but I don't think there's many employers that when they're doing things like annual pay reviews are actually breaking down and saying, OK, well, your, you know, your, your basic pay is being uplifted by 5%. And by the way, this means X amount extra going into your pension this year or X amount extra in this benefit. Maybe, maybe that's a, a, communi- a communication piece that could directly aid that ownership debate. Yeah, I, I think I'll take you back to where you started on that on that on that um, piece, Rachel, and to the to the DB. I, I remember when my grandfather was retiring; he'd, he'd worked the same employer all his life, um, and I remember the you know sitting in the front room 
and uh, my granddad was talking to my, my nan about you know what should we do did we take the tax-free cash do we just take higher income and, and, and that sort of debate i remember my mum and dad being in the room as well and, and and that debate was was something that was probably played out in many households but because there was only that single employment it, it almost felt like that that conversation would carry on in the workplace um, and people would then understand that actually, when I work for this employer, people make these decisions. So if you, yeah, if you're new into that workplace, you, and you're listening to the old guys talking about, yeah, the, the their benefits, their upcoming retirement, then you've got the whole loop. You've got the whole lifetime in the one place. So I think perhaps where some some place some, somewhere where that conversation about pensions has broken down. It's not just in the fact that we now talk about DC, which is infinitely more complicated in the hands of a member than, than DB, but also in the fact that we move employers so frequently. Um, and when it comes to retirement, we don't have those conversations anymore. We don't have those conversations. We don't see people in the workplace retiring, um, or not, not generally. Yeah, it, I, I've been at SEI uh, five years. And I think I've seen two people retire in five years, and that's a workforce of you know, nearly a thousand people. Uh, if I think back to previous work, you know, employers that I've had, even some of the big consultancy firms that employ thousands of people, I don't remember too many people retiring from the workplace. Now I understand that different workplaces are going to be different, but if you don't have sort of lots of people coming through that process and retiring and talking about retirement in the workplace. How do you have people that are younger understanding that there's a benefit to being with a firm and a benefit to the money that the employer is paying? So it's taken a bit of a tangent from, from, from where you went, but I think maybe it's one of the things that we've, we've lost in that sort of society. Yeah, well, I think you're right. And I think those challenges are probably exacerbated in this post-pandemic space that we operate in now where we've got hybrid workforces who are you know maybe even if they're with an employer for a longer period of time than might be the average they're not necessarily as connected to the rest of the workforce as they've been in the past if you're going into a central location so yeah interesting changing well, challenges it sort of feels like the you know the, the change the breakdown in in families you know so People, people may not have had that same conversation, Steve, because they might not be sitting in the front room with their grandparents as often as perhaps you did, you know, or why did. Yeah. You know, when yeah. people are closer, we're all more disconnected. You don't have shared experiences. You don't see, like you say, that full life cycle of the pension. Actually, while you guys have been talking, I've just been trying to think about sort of more about ownership and what that means. And I was thinking of, well, I love to work in analogies. You work in stats. I like to work in analogies. And I was trying to think of one. And I just, I can't help getting past the car. So I own a car and I'm not really into cars. I own a car because I need to, I need to get from A to B. My car's even got moss growing on it. That's how much I don't really <laughs> like cars. I was ashamed to see this the other day. I will sort that out. But it works. And when it, you know, every now and again, I take it, get its MOT every year. And I, um, and, you know, a little light goes on with the dashboard and I take it down to the garage and they tell me that some filter has, needs fixing and they fix it. And I know there's some people who really love cars and they'd love to tinker and they'll be really into it. I think it's a pretty good analogy for how it'd be nice if pension people look at pensions like their car. It has warning lights on it. 
and you get it fixed. If it's if you're not putting enough in, there's a warning light. If it's not going to give you the income you need, there's a warning light. And for those that really love it, they can go off and get a sip or something, get really funky and put fine art and wine and stuff in their pension or whatever and go bombing around um, on track days. But I think that's kind of, I would like, because I've always been pretty sniffy about engagement as being that people do find pensions boring. You're never really going to change that. But a lot of people do find cars boring, but they have one. A lot of people find pensions boring, but they have one. Let's try and, you know, get to people that, like me, who only we look at their car when it breaks down. You know, other than that, I'm happy. I don't know. Does it <laughs> does it help, though, with something like a car? Obviously, it's a, it's a physical asset. You can see it. You can touch it. It's on your drive. You know, it's there. I guess with your pension, firstly, it's not always right in front mm. of your face you might forget it's there we've got all of these lost pots you know side topic do we think pension dashboard will help with that ownership if it's a little bit more visible yeah the, the pensions garage that's the, the garage isn't it that's where you go to have a look at all your your, your cars if it's J, jk and you've got all your cars all in a garage somewhere the pension dashboard is your garage that's your drive isn't it maybe that's the analogy i don't know Steve, okay, sorry. that's our first jamiroquai <laughs> reference on a podcast so well done <laughs> done it it's a challenge i set myself right at the start i've ticked that yeah. off <laughs> sorry steve um, do you want to come in yeah, well I, you know, there's a couple of things i was going to say the, the pensions dashboard still requires an action it, yeah the, the pensions dashboard will be your garage but you still got to go and have a look in the garage to see what's there you've still got to want to go so how do we get people to want to go and go and have a look if i had jk's garage i'd i'd, I'd, I'd have a stall sitting and I'm, I'm looking at those things all day long but i don't I probably have as many pensions as he's got cars, having moved around a few times. But I, but I don't sit there looking at them all day long because Rachel, you're right, they don't have that same attraction. Um, going back to the the ways in which we used to communicate and the ways that we used to think, um, there was a theory at one point that was floating around that people might be more engaged or or, or more willing to take an action or interest if they um, if you could attribute a, a, you know, a value or a size. To, to the pension scheme so you know carrying on the analogy david you know it, if your pension got to the size of the same value as your car would you be more interested if it got to the same value as your house would you be even more interested and i'm going to break those the, the, those thoughts yeah that all, all, all those predictions down because in, in the research that we did it said that 52 percent of those with pots between 50,000 and and a hundred thousand said they felt disconnected from their pension you need a pretty car a pretty smart car to fit in that in that, in yeah. that bracket yeah. yeah absolutely it's not my car <laughs> no certainly not my car either. <laughs> um and three in ten so 31 percent uh with pots over a hundred thousand felt the same way so, so so what does it need to be what what sort of size does it need to be before people get very interested mm -hmm. Um, if if you're going to engage with a dashboard, it might help if you've got a number of pots, I suggest, that are over 100,000. Suddenly you can see 300,000 or 400,000 or something like that, and you think, well, that's meaningful. Maybe, but there's not many people that are in that position, I would suggest. No. Well, it's especially right. a challenge for younger people as well, isn't it? Because, you know, we're, we're talking about owning a car and owning a, a house or Actually, even all those challenges are far more difficult for people entering the workforce now or, you know, 20s, 30s. You're far less likely than you've ever been 
to own a car, you, you're more likely to have it on some lease agreement. You're far less likely to own a property. That's increasingly difficult. So, you know, it, I suppose the traditional equivalence points might not work. But is there something more exciting that we can you know, say to people like, oh, you're maybe not building up those assets, but look at what you are building up? Yeah, um, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I'm, I, there's got to be an answer. Um, in, in fact, some of the sort of the, the pieces of work that we're doing on the back of this is that we've set our um, most recent graduate intake a task. Um, yeah, they, 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 they spread across the UK and the US, um, and we've set them a project to figure out how we can get people that are coming into the workplace to find, not, not sorry, to find pensions interesting, but to to, to get them, to, what, what would we need to do? What would we need to provide? How would we, how would we have to act as an employer, first of all, rather than just as a master trust primarily? How, how would we have to act to get people that are coming into the workplace to sit up and say, I've got a pension? Even if they said they've just got a pension, that would be a better place than than, than we are now, perhaps. Um, yeah, and I suppose that communication, especially from employers, is all important you know we've talked a little bit about that already but I guess thinking about the ownership aspect you're in a pension which you haven't chosen you've been put into and when you get your annual statement typically the most prominent names on that statement are your pension provider's name your employer's name maybe even the advisor that's advising on that pension and actually your own name, the person who owns that pension is normally very small, isn't it? Does that not help subliminally? Yeah. Again, if we go back to maybe three years ago when we started to do um, video statements, um, the firm that we were working with to put those together, who's got a great deal of experience of communicating through animation, um, they made it clear to us that the way you open these statements is to say somebody's name. So, so my statement starts off, hello, Steve. So it's very personalised. It's, you know, it's almost hyper-personalised because it's my name and then it's details about my saving and then it's details about my employer's input and, and what that might mean to me. But having your name up front and making people aware that it's you and your savings you're talking about um, it was something that we were strongly advised to pursue. Um, we were talking about um, engagement with, is it Daniel from Cushion? And one thing he was saying was talking about ESG as being a, a means to sort of access people's engagement, maybe younger people as well, perhaps if they're more engaged or more motivated, sorry, to to think about that. Was that part of your research or was that part of your it wasn't it wasn't part of the explicit research but but we did some round tables which Rachel was which Rachel was at and one of the topics that that came up um amongst you know, the, the methods that we might use the tools that we might use to make people uh, sit up was that goes back to one of the things I said at the beginning um was uh, about money doing good mm. um, and and there might be cohorts within the population that are that you know, if you can send them a message through an app or something like that and say, you know, look at the engagement that we've done on your behalf with your money, and and look how you know you with the other hundred and fifty thousand members of this master trust, and with the collective buying power of SEI and all of our investors that we group together with to to go out to to to, to the world, look what you've done. 
you know, mm. you, you may have made an influence on better practices in palm oil farming, or you know, you've you know, you've done something about fossil fuels, or you've changed something from not just from the environmental but the social aspects as well. And, and perhaps those are things that people might say, yeah, that appeals to me. Mm. And, if, and if you can draw people in to find out about those things, then the next extension is what you're describing to them, how they're contributing to that change and how that may actually be able to draw, allow you to draw them back to the fact that it's their money yeah. that is having this positive impact on the world. So that was something wasn't explicitly in the research itself, David, but it was mm. in the conversations that, that we were throwing around at the roundtables that we had last month. Yeah. Well, I, I imagined it would be because it's definitely an area where that engagement can be can be brought in. Um, we're, we're, I think we're getting close on time, but I, I just wanted just to talk a little bit about. I mean, we're focused on employers and there's a lot of pressure on employers to do stuff, and I wonder whether it's just there's a wider government. Even I know they have the DWP, have their midlife MOT, and and there's the media as well. It just seems to be if we want pensions to be seen as something worth owning considering that millions of people have them you know but can recognize that worth whether we do need to just to try to put pressure on the media and the government to do more to talk about it in a positive light we've had negative headlines recently you know ld pensions going insolvent because of you know ldi and these kind of things and um and that's not great because that just sticks you know those headlines are far stickier than anything we ever seem to do um but then martin lewis does you know, an episode on ITV once a year on pensions, and it's you get they, you know, they they get swamped with interest from people on their in pensions. I just just wonder whether we can just do more to to push people to do more. Yeah, well, I think it's the yeah, the 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 story is that that the bad news is much more compelling and mm. and, and listener worthy or viewer worthy than than, than good news. Um, and, and yeah, the, the failure of something is always going to get a better headline than the success of something. Um, I think if I turn the clock back to my consulting days, and it was a long time ago now, um, we, we we were working with a company, it was a retailer. Um, we'd had brilliant engagement with the unions and the and the um, the, the employee groups, and we we, we were closing a, um, a defined benefit arrangement and putting in place a DC arrangement. And it, it was acknowledged, the, the reasons were acknowledged that it had to happen by the unions and the design of the DC plan was was great. And it was, you know, it, it, it created um, a, a, a sort of aspirational type of aspect as well through the management groups where, you know, if you were at the bottom, you could pay a bit more and get what your manager got. And if you're a manager, you could pay a bit more and get what the director got. And if you're a director, you could pay a bit more and get what the board got. And, and, and that kind of, yeah, that kind of thing stuck to it. And we had brilliant engagement. And for a business that was high street retail, it was fantastic. And I traveled around the country speaking to these people and telling them what was going to happen. There was a general acknowledgement that it was a great, it, yeah, it wasn't as good as a DB from a sense of that somebody was doing it for them compared to they had to do it or, or it was being done to them in, in, in that, 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 res, that respect. But when we took it back to the press, it was like, well, who's going to read about that? What bad news have you got? Yeah. yeah, there was that sort of general feeling that a good news story is never going to be as good for the publishers as the bad news story. And I think that's 
yeah, but that's a shame because that was a good success. But I don't see that's changed. Um, I'd love to see it change. I'd love to see good news about pensions. I'd love to see stories about people who have retired and stories that, of, of people that say, unless I've been in that pension scheme, I wouldn't have been able to have this level of comfort. Because I think, you know, in, in, in essence, if we're sort of storing up a bit of a problem for ourselves um, where people will reach retirement or find that the savings that they have have been inadequate. Um, and it won't be until those bad news stories start to come through that the press will start to get interested in them and then there'll be another series of yeah, pension system fails again. And it's not a failure of the pension system. It's a failure to get people interested in their retirement. Well, there is also a, a challenge, isn't there, when it comes to introducing legislation, potentially that the government could do more working in collaboration with industry. I think pension freedoms could be a good example of that, where, you know, there's the potential amidst all that complexity for all sorts of horror stories. And, you know, we've all seen, you know, people cashing out, paying huge amounts of tax. They haven't been buying Lamborghinis, but, you know, they have been perhaps taking decisions which are not in their financial best interest not intentionally but because they you know have got this really complex landscape to navigate but yeah. without having been armed with the tools to do so and so yeah there is a, I think there is a case as Dave was mentioning about you know some form of more structured approach from the government some more integrated approach but also potentially just that call for bringing financial literacy levels up through you know financial education in schools and you know we talk about pensions so much but this is a problem across all sorts of areas of finance isn't it that people don't necessarily come into the working world armed with all of the information that you might ideally have you know the mortgage landscape's complicated you know do do you actually have the financial literacy you need to make the most of the income that you have yeah i'm a huge fan of if you're going to educate, educate from an early age. Um, yeah, a seven-year-old daughter, um, and, and she knows things cost money. She doesn't know where money comes from. Um, and and you know, um, I, I doubt very much they've got into the intricacies of uh, of retirement planning uh, at the age of seven yet. They're, they're still trying to master column adding up, but you know they'll, they'll get there eventually. I'd love to see something from the curriculum that says, as part of that preparation, maybe it's part of social studies or something like that, part of that preparation for unleashing you into you know, the, the, the world of work, um, have a think about something that is incomprehensibly long way away for you. Yeah, think think forward 40 years. You've got 40 years to make sure that your last 40 years are not spent in poverty. So if you've got 20 years before work, 20 years, 40 years in work, and 40 years after work, just a small amount of time spent in those first 20 talking about how you use the middle 40 to prepare for the last 40, it's got to be worth the investment. It has. I love the perception of kids when it comes to things like that, because, you know, they approach things in such an innocent way, don't they? And even if even if you, you know, tell them about where money comes from, you know, we we work in the pensions industry. My children for some time have thought I was a pensioner, but sadly, I'm, <laughs> I'm, sadly, I'm not yet. But <laughs> So um, let's try and stick on the theme, but let's tackle our myth, myth of the month. Because, Steve, we're going to get you to help tackle our myth of the month this time, because what we're going to 
tackle is this myth that because I'm in a workplace pension scheme and my employer put me into it, I assume that my employer is making sure that I'm paying the right amount into it and I'm invest that I'm invested in the right place. Okay. Steve, help us bust the myth. Uh, help it bust the myth. Okay. Well, I can tell you through the research that we did um, that the myth is a uh, is a belief. Um, it, it, it is it is something is a question that we asked, and actually sixty five percent say um, that I'm going to quote it here. My employer set up the workplace pension, and I trust that they make sure I pay enough in there to retire. So, so it's not just a myth; it, it, it's a belief. Um, so, to bust that myth, we can say, well, to a certain degree, it depends on how much it is being paid in. We can certainly say with some degree of confidence that if it's just the minimum levels required by auto enrollment, that's not going to be enough. There's a really, really hard one for employers to talk about, because if you're an employer, um, you can imagine the message. Um, Hi, Steve, welcome to the workplace. I'm going to put you in a pension scheme. It's a great pension scheme. It's as good as any pension scheme out there but it's not going to give you everything you need to retire. And that's a difficult message. Yeah, it's a, it's a positive message that you're putting somebody into a workplace pension, but it's a really difficult one to say, but it's not going to be enough for you to live on when you get to retirement. So we can bust the myth and say that employers are not going to provide you everything you need to, to retire on. And you do need to take some responsibility yourself to bridge the gap. But if we talked about bridging the gap rather than filling the hole, then, then maybe that's the way to do it. I'll give you something and you give a bit too. But there's a small gap and you've got to figure out how you bridge that gap. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And I think, you know, it's very logical, isn't it? And also that gap might look a bit different from person to person, depending on your you know, your savings background, your wider financial, exactly, expectations, yeah. what age do you actually want to retire? What does yeah. your retirement look like? So, yeah. yeah, I think that's, you know, I think I think you're right there. And what about this idea that if someone's invested um, in their pension through their employer, that that's, you know, that's in the right place, they don't need to do anything about that? Oh, um, yeah, I, th I think as a provider, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a master trust provider, I would sit here and say that the amount of governance time that is spent on making sure the default is the right default for the population, you know, we, 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 we're not taking a route that is the least wrong route. It, we, we're taking the route that is, we'll provide the best that, that we can and make sure that we're doing everything we can to sweat the assets in a, um, in a safe way um, uh, to get better outcomes for members. Um, yeah, most of those defaults that are out there are probably the right place. Um, uh, and it's only for people that say, oh, gee, I want to be fully engaged. It's the people that ironically we're not talking about today, you know, uh, that I want to be fully engaged, that they should be offered the tools to be able to do what they want with it. Because frankly, as a provider, we don't know all the answers about every single member. We don't know their circumstances. We don't know whether they have other accumulated savings that they've got. And the pension is a small part of the, the, their overall savings empire. Um, and, and maybe they do want to do something else with that because everything else is sorted. 
but I would strongly suggest that those people are in the minority and having 90 odd percent in a default is probably the right amount. Brilliant. Dave, have you got anything to add or can we consider that myth busted? Oh, I'm just, yeah, it's just busted. <laughs> Comprehensively. No, it's a, it's a, no, actually it kind of reflected, some of the myths we do are really quite clearly nonsense, but there's, there's kind of a bit more nuance to that one. So that was quite, it was good to get a bit more, a bit more in depth with that. So that was great. No, thanks, Steve. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Steve. And thanks to everyone for listening. Hopefully you've found the episode interesting. Certainly a new concept for us to consider this idea of pensions ownership. Thanks very much from me. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Dave, for having us. Thank you. See you again.